So this is uh, week number two of our series, our teaching series, and our practice series on the spiritual formation of justice and uh, reconciliation, the spiritual practice of justice and reconciliation. And, and what we are trying to do as we, as we teach through and we practice together these different spiritual formation practices is to not only teach and to talk and to reflect and to think about these things intentionally, to think about them in a way that is biblically and scripturally centered, but also to be a people that practice them. Too often we find ourselves just thinking about things and, and conceptualizing things, and that's where we stop. But we as a community want to be people that practice the things that God says and that God has given us to practice that bring us in line with who he is, what he says is true, and what ultimately uh, helps us to participate in the way that he is forming and shaping us as his followers and as a people. And so, as Brian mentioned last Sunday, uh, we have a lot of resources that we want to put in your hands and make available to you. If you look on the back of your worship guide, if you got one of those on your way in, on the back of your worship guides, you will see in this blue box uh, that you can go to our website and you can find uh, a lot of different things. You can find, uh, obviously, the, the sermon recordings of, of what we're teaching here on Sunday morning. We have a practice guide, uh, so, uh, some discussion questions and different practices that we are going to be doing together in our missional community groups. Uh, we, have a, we have a podcast uh, where a group of people from all three of our Soma congregations are getting together weekly just to discuss uh, the teaching for that particular week and just how we make sense of that, things we wrestle with uh, in that teaching, but also how we're putting that teaching into practice in our day in and day out lives. Uh, one of the things we also want to do is we want to make this personal and we want uh, to give you an opportunity uh, each Sunday here over the next three weeks to hear what does this look like in the actual lives of people. And so we've asked some different people from our congregation here at Northwest to share a little bit about what that looks. So, Ayana, if you will come up, uh, we want to give you an opportunity each week to hear from real people about what, the, what practicing justice and reconciliation, what the experience of real people in the real world is uh, when it comes to the practice of justice and the practice of reconciliation. So will you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do for work? So I'm Ayana Coles. Um, I am an instructional coach now at New Augusta South with Tara Gornick. Um, I've been a teacher for... Um, 14 years, and this is my first time being a coach, so I'm in a new role of coaching teachers. Um, I'm a mom to those three over there, Taryn, Tristan, and Jared. I'm also a student, a wife, and that's it. <laughs> is that all you do? <laughs> so when we think about um, the practice of justice, the practice of racial reconciliation, obviously within that we recognize that we need to be people of justice and of reconciliation because injustice exists. And there's a lot of segregation and racism and just prejudice and just all kinds of things from a personal level all the way up to a systemic and structural level. And we see that in education and in our school system. So will you tell us a little about a little bit about how you've experienced those things, just where you see um, those things existing in your school and just in the educational system at large? So, um, as I said before, I'm a student, and so I've spent, I've been working on my doctorate for forever. So I've spent a lot of time studying um, race and how race influences the actions of teachers and um, how students are able to connect to teachers as well as culture as well. Um, and so for me, with racial, re I wrote this down, for racial reconciliation, the biggest thing is people understanding the need for it. Um, teachers, uh, specifically, a lot of teachers, whether you're white, black, um, Latino, Asian, it doesn't matter, think that the things that we see in school are natural and normal. Um, often think that it, the fault lies on families and neighborhoods 
and never really take the time to think about how systemic injustice has played a role in the way our schools are created, um, how the history of this country has played a role in, in the structures of our schools. So that's often something that's very difficult for teachers to come to understand that it's not natural, it's not normal, um, and you do have power and agency to change it. So speak a little bit to that. Um, what are some specific ways that you're bringing awareness uh, in your context and just some of the things uh, that you're trying to do with other teachers as you coach them and just even your presence in, in general in the whole system and, and structure of your school? And then what are some things that, that you want to see happen that, that aren't there yet, that, but you think this is where we need to go in order to address some of these real barriers between people of different races, uh, socioeconomic systems, all the things that, all the barriers that exist among students and teachers? Um, what I've done in the past, I worked at Eagle Creek with Krista um, for five years, and when I was there, I went to my administrators and I asked if we could have uh, courageous conversations about race. And I knew then that our conversations had to start small, um, they had to be personable. Um, you don't know what you don't know. So I took that approach with teachers and we just had conversations about how does race influence our lives. We did racial um, autobiographies and just thought about like, when's the first time you ever met someone who's different from you? What assumptions did you have about that person? Where did that come from? Um, and just really just getting on the personal level of understanding that um, it's not that you are a bad person or we are bad people. We've just been indoctrinated into these beliefs and we have to um, interrogate them. And so having those real um, personal conversations with teachers first helped, but we can't stop there. Um, so, but you can't stop there, but it's a journey. And so it's a continuum, it's a development. And so it takes time and you can't rush people through this process. So the conversations have to be consistent and they have to be ongoing. And then with that, you have to couple it with the action. So helping um, teachers to understand different ways of teaching, progressive ways of teaching. There's something called culturally relevant um, slash sustaining pedagogy. Um, there's something called critical pedagogy that just teaches teachers how to put into action what we've discussed in our small groups. But even that, that can't stop. So it has to come also from the leadership level. And in Pike this year, or last year, our superintendent started a diversity council where we had um, parents, um, Deb was a part of it, and community members and teachers come together and have some more courageous conversations. Um, so really the basis of it is just talking. We just have to talk. And then we have to have strategic action. And even with strategic action, people are not robots. So it's just learning and failing and learning and failing, but being consistent and um, understanding the urgency that's needed. And just lastly, um, as you think about the work that you've done, the work you're a part of, the things that you're seeing, the steps that are being taken, uh, where are you hopeful? Uh, where are you seeing glimpses of hope um, are, is there a story you could share, just examples that you could give of where you see in your context uh, reasons for hope and reasons to be encouraged about uh, the things that are happening? Sure, I can still share a story. So at New Augusta, I had our first cultural PD, and at the end of that PD, several teachers were excited about it and like, we need to have this conversation. So again, it's just like, just start having it. People will talk about it if you create a safe space. Um, and so the willingness of teachers wanting to um, have these conversations and join in small groups and delve deeper makes me hopeful. And then there's also teachers who are just willing and ready to do the work. Like they wanna learn the action steps. They wanna implement different things in their classroom. Um, and that's very hopeful as well. And then just the fact that our, our whole district is, um, has a diversity council now that they're working with IUPUI to really address inequities in our school system. Thank you so much for sharing with us and just the work that you're doing. Um, and would you, before we invite our scripture to be read here and listen to our teaching this morning, would you pray with me? Join me in praying that um, as those of us who are involved 
Ayana, those others who are our teachers here and administrators, parents, um, as we are involved in our school systems here in our city, uh, that we would continue to be people of justice and reconciliation, that we would advocate for these things, and that we would pray and trust that God would use these spaces uh, as places where his truth and his justice can go forward. So would you bow with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that um, you are the one that brings life, uh, that you are the one who ultimately can transform. Uh, and we, thank, we are thankful for the transforming work that you are doing in our lives, um, that as you are transforming us, that then you, through your Holy Spirit, are empowering us to be a transforming presence in our community, in the places of influence um, that you have put us in. Uh, we thank you for Ayana, and we thank you for others who are uh, working in our education system on all different levels. Uh, we thank you for their integrity and their character. We thank you for their desire to teach our children uh, and to help our children as they grow up in um, this age that we live in. We th we're thankful that their teaching isn't just restricted to books and, and papers and assignments, uh, but that they are loving on children, that they are caring for children, that they are invested in the, in the lives of their children, not just the time that they spend with them uh, in classroom hours. We pray that for those of us in this church community um, that are involved all the way from principals and administrators to teachers um, to parents uh, who are involved, uh, students who are a part uh, of, of our school system, we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are existing in these spaces and growing in these spaces as people who bring your peace. Um, who bring your life, who point people to the goodness of God, um, the reconciliation that has happened between God and man, and that it is a, that is available uh, between us as human beings because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We pray for Ayana specifically and in her endeavors that you would give her strength uh, to continue on, that you would give her perseverance. Um, and encourage to continue to press into these spaces. And we pray that her efforts and the efforts of, of the rest of us, um, that you would use those for your glory and that you would use that, those to make our, our education system here in this city a place of justice, a place of equity, a place where teachers and, and students and parents uh, find real life and find the peace of God in very tangible and practical, practical ways. And we lift this up to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Ian. Luke? I'm Luke, and I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning. It's uh, Acts 26, and if you're using one of these Bibles, it's on page 545. Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and into Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part, party of our religions, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme 
and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thanks, Luke. Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Very excited to share with you all today. As part of our series on justice and reconciliation, we are trying to ask ourselves, not everybody else in the world, not all of America, ourselves in this room and in our other congregations, how we are supposed to live as a people. And so this is something, a conversation that is unfolding over the course of several weeks. So we're not gonna answer every single question this morning. We won't even answer every single question in four weeks. But this morning, I've been tasked to talk about this topic for a very special reason. This morning, we're going to talk about the true history of our city. We are a church for the city, in the city, We love the city. It's one of the things that first drew my family to Soma when we first came here, that we are committed to the city of Indianapolis, that we love and want to see this city transform, that we want to, starting in our neighborhoods, see the kingdom of God go forward. Look, we can't change the whole world. We can't change this whole country. We'll be hard-pressed to change this whole city, but at least in our neighborhoods, we can be people of righteousness, people of justice, people who are bringing the rule and the reign of God to our neighbors, to our friends, to our families. And one of the reasons why I was asked to share this morning is because, as many of you know, I super love Indianapolis. Like, super love Indianapolis. If Monument Circle and Hinkle Field House had a baby, it would be me. I really, y'all know too, right? Like here it is, right? 
every week it looks like some Indianapolis team threw up all over me. And it's not just because I love sports. It's because I love Indianapolis. I was born here. I was raised here. Other than, you know, that short decade that we spent in South America, I've (laughs) spent most of my whole life here. And this city is incredibly important to me. So this morning, everything I share about the nature of this city, of its history, I share from a point of view of love, of deep and abiding affection for Indianapolis. And I want to see this city thrive and grow and change. And I want to see us here together as a family affect that change. But if we can't even speak openly and honestly about the problems that have existed, if we can't tell the same truth about the history of this city, if we can't examine root causes together, how are we going to affect change together? How are we gonna make anything better together if we can't even say the same thing about what our city is? So when I say that the most generous thing I can say about the city of Indianapolis and the topic of race is that this city has a very complicated history. That's the nicest way I could possibly put it. I could probably say a lot uh, less nice things than I will over the course of this morning. But when I say that, I'm saying that from the point of view of someone who's completely enamored and enraptured with the city of Indianapolis. And that will be problematic for some people because some people are going to say, how can you possibly love a place that has been and still is really evil? How can you possibly love that place? Doesn't that make me evil too? How can I look at a city I love and say I love it and tell the truth about its flaws? And then other people are going to be saying, if you say you love this city, how can you talk about it that way? How can you bring those things up? How can you tell that kind of a story if you say you really love this place? Is it racist to love a city with a long history of racism? If you love your city, how dare you call it racist? These are the questions I hope that we can answer together this morning as we explore God's word and we think about how we should think about our city, what the truths are that we can agree about, about our common history, and what that will hopefully do to shed light on the things that we can do to take steps to heal our city and to bring justice to our city and to see God's reign expand, God's dominion increase over the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters. This morning, I've asked uh, my wife, Deb, to come and help teach with me for a lot of reasons. A, you guys just heard from me a couple weeks ago, so I'm assuming that you probably want a little bit of a break, um, and also because she's pretty much the best teacher that I know. Um, And This morning, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and his life. As Luke read from Acts 26, Paul has a very complicated relationship with his own ethnic and national identity. And we're gonna look at him and his life for guidance on how we talk about a murderous and problematic history. Because as we talked about a couple weeks ago, ultimately we are looking for a common identity in Jesus Christ. We are looking to be living stones built up into a wall, into a house, into a temple in which God dwells. That means not only alignment with each other, built together with mortar, but alignment with the chief cornerstone. That's really what all this month is about, a self-check. Are we aligned with the cornerstone? And so this morning, our big idea, the thing that I want us to hold on to is that we cannot live into our true identity, our mutual true identity as God's redeemed children if we can't even be honest about what we've been saved from. We cannot live into our identity as God's redeemed children if we cannot be mutually honest about what we've been saved from. Morning. So my job today is to sort of tell Paul's story as we go through this, and uh, I'll leave all the Indianapolis talk to Nate because I am not a native, so uh, (laughs) can't help where you're born. But uh, I... I am going to start, though, and with Paul's life back at the beginning. So that's what we want to do. We want to start with where he started. Before Jesus stopped him on the road one day 
and completely changed his life. Where was Paul's identity? Because this is, we all have that part of our lives. We do as individuals and we do as a group. We have the part of us that's before. <laughs> Who were we before Jesus? And that's what we want to start with, with Paul. Um, if you want to flip with me to this one, feel free to do that. I'm going to start in Philippians 3, which is on page 571 if you're using those Bibles. Here's how Paul describes himself apart from Christ. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. A lot of those are words that if you weren't Jewish, you wouldn't even know what they meant. If you haven't been coming to church for a long time and heard those things, maybe you don't know what all of them mean. But to him, they were all deeply meaningful words. This was who he was. He was, his whole identity was wrapped up in his ethnicity and his religious practices as a Jew. That's who he was. He was one of God's chosen people. He had been following the rules of his culture since he was an infant. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That means his parents did it all right from the beginning. Perfect, according to his culture. He learned, he studied, he joined one of the strictest sects of his religion, and he became fully wrapped up in being as Jewish as you can be, as Hebrew as you could be, and that is who he was. And at that time, his people lived under oppression. His people lived in the Roman Empire in which they were not treated well. They did not have power over their own fate. They had to submit to Roman authority. They were an oppressed people in and of themselves. And they had been under various kingdoms of various times throughout their history. They'd been exiled. They'd been oppressed. They'd lived under the rule of very various kingdoms. And so they had this identity as God's chosen people set apart something special. And that identity had been sustaining them under all kinds of oppression for a long time. He was wrapped up in being Jewish. He was God's chosen person, a part of God's chosen people. And that was who he was supposed to be. And then a threat came along to his identity. <laughs> Even before he met Jesus, this group of people arose who had met Jesus, and who claimed that they worshipped that same God that was the only thing that made him special. And he reacted immediately. Don't turn here. Just listen to this description from Acts 7 and 8. Speaking of Stephen, who was one of the earliest followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The oppressed was quick to become the oppressor when his identity was threatened. When I was in fourth grade at IPS 84, I was taught Indiana history, as many of you who grew up in Indiana would be. Uh, and I was taught very early on about the Northwest Territory, which is a collection of states now, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. And one of the things that was called out, and I remember this very clearly when I was in fourth grade, was that slavery was always illegal in the Northwest Territories. That was specifically beat into our heads in the fourth grade. It was really an important fact. Slavery was always forbidden here. We were the good guys. We never had that problem. That was for the Dirty South. The Dirty South had slavery, but Indiana never did. What I wasn't taught, what I didn't learn until years later, was that in 1851, the state constitution 
expressly forbade African Americans from settling in the state of Indiana under penalty of law. Literally said, people of African descent, and the, the original language of it is horrifying, are not allowed to live in this state. No one can come and settle here. And that was not, law was not changed. It was just nullified by the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We weren't ever the good guys in Indiana. But it was really, really important that we learned about Levi Coffin and the Quakers and the Underground Railroad and their heroic efforts to lead people out of slavery. It was really important that we learned that Indiana sent more troops to the Civil War than any other state. But we were never taught that the Ku Klux Klan gained so much power in Indiana in the 20s that the governor's mansion was populated with a Klan member. We weren't taught those things because we were learning that racism was wrong, but it was other people that had the problem of racism. It was other cities. It was other states. We were only told certain things. Now, there were kids of all kinds of races and colors in my elementary school class, and we were all learning the same facts. Some of us unlearned those the hard way when they realized, oh, there's this whole other set of truths, and others... and Others, like myself, had to be educated along the way. Why was there both acknowledgement that these kinds of evils existed, but also a systemic covering up of our own culpability as Hoosiers in these things? And it got me thinking as we were listening to the story about Paul that a great number of people who came to the United States, who settled in this country, uh, from all over the world, came as oppressed peoples. My own family is Irish. My grandfather arrived in New Orleans in 1849 as part of the Irish potato famine, which more than a million uh, Irish people died. They were called dogs, blamed for their own famine, and uh, the English let them starve to death, and a million people died, and those that didn't tried to escape and that's my own family history. And there's, whether you're talking about uh, folks that were brought over as prisoners into Georgia, whether you're talking about the Catholics in Maryland, whether you're talking about the Quakers in Pennsylvania, the Puritans and the Baptists in New England, all of these people came to America because they were persecuted. So it's no wonder that Americans are so effective at oppression and persecution because hurt people hurt people. The fact is what happened to Paul in which being a member of an oppressed group turned him into a murderer, <laughs> turned him into an oppressor. That's what happens to all of us. We have all kinds of histories here. It's what happens in all kinds of communities. When you are oppressed, you either become empathetic and sensitive, which doesn't happen to most people. Most people, when you face hardcore oppression and you're forced to flee your homeland or you're brought to a new homeland, you learn the hard way that the world is cold and cruel. It is our mutual identity as immigrants and as people who have experienced oppressions, regardless of our backgrounds. It's that identity uh, that fosters through and that makes us so um, sensitive to the isolation and the rejection. It's a core danger for abused people. It happens to individuals. We all know folks. Many of us are those folks. Well, we've experienced abuse and trauma in our own lives. And if you've experienced that, you know one of the biggest battles personally is not to be an abuser yourself. You know when you've been kicked around when you've been stepped on, when you've been treated badly, you know it's gonna be a war for the rest of your life to break that cycle, to find freedom. That same thing is true at a people level. Persecution begets persecution. It's one of the real dangers in continuing these kinds of systems. Oppressed people eventually oppress other people. The fact that no one is immune that there is no people group that's immune from the long chain of oppression, that's not an argument or an excuse for racist policies. It's the core argument against those things. 
speaking the truth about the background that our family members have come from and what that made them do and how that made them act, that is a core part of owning who we are because we can't live into our true identity as God's redeemed children if we're not honest with the world about what we've been saved from. And that's true about whether it's personal or whether it was part of your ethnic or racial history. If we can't tell the truth about who we were, we can't be who God made us to be. So then God intervened in Paul's life. Jesus came to Saul literally in the middle of him doing evil acts. <laughs> Jesus showed up, stopped him where he was, and changed his life. So radically, he went by a different name after that. <laughs> changed completely everything he was about, turned him, and he started going in the other direction pretty much immediately. So he wasn't that guy anymore. He didn't have that old identity. His new identity was an identity in Christ, and I hope that most of the people in this room claim that as well in their lives, right? You're a new person. Paul was a new person. It should have all been good from there. <laughs> it should have been like that was in the past, and now he was a new person, and let's see what God's going to do in his life. But the smooth sailing that you would have expected was not at all what happened, of course. Instead, Acts 9 says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Look, oppression naturally breeds suspicion, it would actually be sort of dumb if you didn't feel a little suspicious of somebody who had abused you, <laughs> somebody who had persecuted you and intentionally caused you suffering. <laughs> In Paul's case, he didn't just show up, claim the name of Jesus, and everything was okay. It took a process <laughs> of healing, and it took a person willing to stand up for him. It took a person willing to bridge the gap between him and the people he had hurt. And believing in Paul's claim that he was a different person was not about believing in Paul as a person. He receives no congratulations for turning his life around. <laughs> for them, for Barnabas, and then for the apostles to whom he took Paul, believing in his conversion was really believing a real faith. This was a real step of faith in the power of Jesus to change someone's life. <laughs> and Paul never says, and then they all were thankful that I had gotten it together. <laughs> Instead, in Galatians, when he writes to them and describes this, he says, they praised God because of me. <laughs> because they realized that was the only way this kind of change could have happened. I love Indianapolis. I love it. I dedicate my life to this city, to its good, to its prospering, to its flourishing. But there's a lot of racial animus and distrust in this city. There just is. I'd be lying to you about a place I love if I didn't acknowledge that. And why is that true? Why is there so much distrust? Why, why don't we all just get over everything and just think about the past? Indianapolis schools were desegregated formally in 1877 and then resegregated again with the influx of Klan power in the 1920s. This is the only place in America where that happened. The only place in America where schools desegregated and then resegregated is right here. In 1927, Crispus Attucks High School was founded, making, uh, and it remained segregated until 1971. I have friends, I know people in this room whose moms and dads attended this high school. And Crispus Attucks is one of the great sources of pride for our city. Incredible leaders and thinkers, world changers, went to high school there. But it was forced segregation until 1971. I love Indianapolis. I love that Crispus Attucks is part of Indianapolis. But oh my gosh, <laughs> We resegregated our schools. 
if you were a black teenager in Indianapolis in 1970, the odds were very good that that was your high school. And it wasn't desegregated until forced by federal order. A federal judge had to come in and basically said that more or less for the 20 years prior, every zoning decision by the school board was made for racial reasons. That's the truth of our city. And that's not ancient history. That's recent. Those are my friends' moms and dads. Think about your moms and dads for those of you that are white. Think about their experiences. Think about the things they've told you. Now, imagine if your parents had been forced to go to segregated schools. By the way, they were. They were just in all white schools, so they also experienced segregation, but it's different, and it's also eroding and destructive in its own way. If there's a spirit of distrust and wounding in this city, maybe we can own that. <laughs> maybe that's for good reason. Indianapolis has gone backwards before, and it wasn't that long ago. Sometimes we think that there's this idea of a forward march to the future where things are just going to keep getting better and we're all going to live in peace and harmony. It's not true, guys. The world goes back and forth. We live in a time now where we're all allowed to worship together, where we don't have men in white hoods beating down our doors, lighting crosses on the front lawn of this school because we're worshiping together on Sunday, but the world can go backwards just as easy as it can go forwards. And Indianapolis is proof of that. So why is there distrust? Why is there animus? Why do people not trust or feel comfortable with each other? It's because of our history. But if we can't say that out loud, how can we ever do anything about it? It doesn't make trust impossible, but it can't be assumed. And we can't pretend it never happened. As a reconciled body of believers worshiping together here in Indianapolis, is it even possible? Are wounds too deep? Is there too much distrust? Who's going to welcome Saul? Who's going to welcome Saul? Where is Barnabas welcoming Saul, who is famous for his persecution? It requires facilitators who can bridge the gap for the sake of the kingdom, who can recognize the truth of Jesus Christ in somebody's life, Barnabas's, Ananias's to lead the way, because without them, Saul would never be accepted. But also, if Saul had gone around being like, oh, no, I wasn't that guy. That stuff never happened. I didn't actually drag your mom and dad off to prison. I didn't actually approve of Stephen's death. You guys have it all wrong. That's, that's, that's all fake history. That didn't really happen. If that had been Saul, if that had been Saul's attitude towards his past, there never would have been reconciliation. There never would have been the praising of God. The church couldn't have lived into its true identity as God's redeemed children if it hadn't been honest about what it had been saved from. We can't live into our true identity until we are honest about what we've been saved from. So Paul makes it clear that once he was new in Christ, that new identity was all that matters. The end of that passage I read in Philippians about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and circumcised on the eighth day, the very next verse says, indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Compared to who he was as a child of God, as someone redeemed by Jesus, as a follower of Christ, compared to that identity, all of his other identities were trash. None of them mattered. So if you are of the opinion that everyone in this room who has been saved by Jesus is one and the same, that we all have the same identity and that we are completely equal and the same, you are right. Compared to everything else, your identity in Christ is the only thing that matters. But Paul did not ever stop being the person that he was in the middle of that. 
We have him saying to us in Romans, as he talks about the Jews, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He still has this deep, deep love for his people. His people, like ethnically speaking. He says, this is who I am in Christ and it's all that matters. But you know what? I would, I would be cut off from that if they could have it. That's how much I love them. He says then in Romans 11, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He still was who he was. <laughs> he just was who he was ethnically to the fullest and redeemed by Jesus. He was a Jew the way God meant Jews to be, <laughs> fully redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And... He never denies his political citizenship either. As it happens in Paul's life, he was born into a family that had citizenship in the oppressive country that ruled them. He was a Roman citizen by birth, uh, which was a big deal back then. It's a thing we all take for granted. But for them, citizenship was a thing you often had to buy or earn by by fighting battles or do things like that. Paul was born into that, and he never denies that either. He takes his political citizenship, and he uses it. We have a story in Acts um, 22. It's actually the first time he tells the story. It's how he got arrested before he starts telling the story in front of the leaders in Acts 26 that Luke read us a minute ago. And they arrested him. At first, they were planning to whip him <laughs> publicly just to get this riot of people off of their backs. So they stretched him out for the whips, it says. And Paul says to the centurion who is standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Just, you know, casually before they drop the whip. Uh, is this legal? <laughs> and the centurion hears this. He, says, he goes to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. <laughs> And so the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. And the tribune said, I, brought, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Mic drop. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid. And he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him without a trial. So he was terrified. So Paul takes his rights as a citizen. He doesn't deny them. Now, you never see him traveling through the world going, <clears throat> Roman coming through or anything like that. But when time came that his citizenship was valuable to the spread of the gospel, he used it. He owned it. He was who he was in his ethnic heritage as an Israelite. And he was who he was in his political heritage, his, his regional heritage as a Roman citizen. And he used both of those for the gospel. The gospel redeemed both of those things. He didn't leave behind who he was. He just let all of who he was be transformed and used by Christ. One of the cool things about Indianapolis, and I'm not going to give you guys a really boring civics lesson, but if you've ever wondered why the whole city of Indianapolis is basically Marion County, that's this really inventive thing they did in the 70s called Unigov. And Unigov was this really sort of transforming thing for the city of Indianapolis. It took all the little enclave communities and all those little neighborhoods and basically said, you're all Indianapolis. And this was revolutionary, and it saved the city. And it became a model for all kinds of cities all over the world. We're like, hey, this is actually the way you should structure a city. And it brought some justice and some equality throughout the city because now instead of being able to say, well, I live in this neighborhood and we have a few more nicer houses than they do in that neighborhood, so our tax base is better and our uh, streets are better and everything's better, it evened out the city and made the whole city of Indianapolis. It gave us a common identity. And that was great. And that was more just than the path the city was on before. But... There was one thing about Unigov that was left out, and that was the schools, because in the township schools, which Pike is a township in Indianapolis, there's nine townships. They form a square throughout the city. The township schools were expressly left out of Unigov, the only thing that it wasn't brought to bear. IPS was left on its own in the middle, and all the township schools, which were mostly overwhelmingly white, they persisted with their own identities. So it was a compromise. We got a little more just, to get that, we had to trade off 
and sacrifice, essentially IPS schools, while the townships continued to thrive. And even today, we live in a township with a really excellent school system. It is now uh, overwhelmingly African-American, but it is an incredible school system with really great infrastructure. But that was largely because of a systemic decision to not include schools in Unigov. Our corporate identity as Indianapolisians, Indians, I don't know what we call ourselves. <laughs> Oddly enough, we don't have a, a good name for it because Indianapolis and Indiana have always been sort of indistinguishable. We're all just Hoosiers here, right, theoretically. That kind of identity across the city that we're all Indianapolis, that only went so far. It went just enough beneath the surface. But if you peel it back a layer, there was still layers of distrust. Creating a more just city isn't the same thing as creating a just city. And so we look at Indianapolis and we say, wow, there are some amazing things about the city, really progressive and interesting and cool things, and also some really dark things. And I say, I love this city. And if I'm going to live into my true identity as a child of God, I'm going to be honest with the world about where I came from, my family's role and history in this city, for good, for bad, on both sides. I'm going to be honest about all of it because it's all been redeemed by God and Jesus Christ. Which just brings us back to closer to the end of Paul's life after many, many years of ministry when he is arrested and he is called up before these Roman leaders and they ask him, what, what's going on? What's up with this arrest and this whole thing? And he gets a chance to tell this story. And by this point in his life, Paul has already multiple times told this story. It's what he said to the people when they let him talk to them in Jerusalem the day he was arrested. It's what he said to his own people. It's what he said to the people he had been ministering among. It's, what, it's written in the letters he sent off to the churches that he helped to start. And he says before these kings, this whole story, he stands up and he just tells the whole truth about himself. That whole chapter of 26, which Luke read, is just Paul standing up and telling the whole truth. It's kind of an ugly thing. I'm not going to reread that entire chapter to you, but let me just read a few of the verses. These are Paul's own words. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that sh shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, in his heart language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is Paul just telling the whole truth about where he came from. He doesn't hold it back. He doesn't shade it, you know. He doesn't try to sort of spin it a little. He doesn't justify himself. He just tells how he murdered God's people. He threw them in jail. He pursued them. He tried to make them speak ill of Jesus and recant their faith. And he tells this when it's necessary, he just speaks that truth plainly. The story of his own evil. Not so he can wallow in the shame over what he used to do, but so he can highlight the saving work of Jesus and the difference that that made. Because that is, we can't live into that true identity as people who are redeemed by God if we're not honest about what it is he saved us from. The Lord Jesus Christ is giving glory 
when we openly say we were wicked, but we have been saved. He is given glory when we tell the truth about who we are, about our histories, about the things that we've experienced. He receives glory and praise. And people don't look at us and say, wow, y'all are trash. They look at Jesus and they say, I can't believe he could save them. I love my city, but I want Jesus Christ to receive glory for its transformation. And if I'm not honest about what's happened here, I'm robbing God of glory. How do we apply this this morning? What do we do? What do do we take away? What's our shoe leather? Number one, love your city. Love it. If it's hurt you, if it's wounded you, love your city. If it's sheltered you and comforted you, love your city. If it's done both at the same time, love your city. How can I love a place that was and still is evil? Doesn't that make me evil too? How can I love a city and say these things about it? Look, it's not racist to love a city or a country with long history of racism and long history of evil. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you wouldn't come to me. That's how Jesus felt about his city, weeping for it, loving it, calling it by name, city of prophet murderers, city of stonings, city of persecution. I love you. Won't you come to me? It's not racist to love Indianapolis or America or the Constitution, even though all those things have racist elements to them. If we need them to be perfect in order to love them, that's something wrong with us. It is a problem. It is pure racism for anyone to require that we ignore the truth happening around us about the city or our nation or laws in order to say that you truly love it. It's like criticism within the family, right? You all know, you all have that brother, sister, cousin that you can make fun of, that you can tag on all the time. But the minute somebody outside the family does it, everybody, you're like, no, you come to their, you rush to their aid, right? The fact is, in America, we haven't treated everybody as members of the family. When people raise their hand, they say there's problems. We get all upset. And too many times that's because we here right now aren't willing to say, hey, you're a member of the family too, so you've got things to say. We have to live into our identity in Christ, and that means speaking the truth. So that's just, that's, that's where we end. We have to tell the truth. We have to do this. I know this conversation, this whole month, this whole everything, I know this is exhausting. I know a lot of you are tired of it. I know some of you didn't want to start with it at all. We've seen this conversation, the conversation about our history, the conversation about race and culture, we've seen it used as therapy where everyone just gushes about their feelings and it's super unproductive. (laughs) We've seen it used as a bludgeon to beat people down who were different than us. We've seen it used as a marketing gimmick to make people look good because they were mentioning it. And all of that makes us feel sick and we're sick of it and we're tired. But we're not trying to speak about the past in any of those ways. We're trying to speak about the past in the way that Paul did, acknowledging that what happened in the past is a part of who we are today and allowing God's work throughout all of that to bring glory to him. If we don't tell the truth about where we've come from, that's not being loving and letting people off the hook. That's not forgiving and moving on, not telling the truth is just being ashamed. (laughs) And it's denying God the chance to be glorified, to show the work that he's done. We live in an age of lies, right? Is that the spirit of our age? It's just lies. It's untruth. We don't even all agree about what the facts are. We don't even all agree about what happened. There's versions of history which isn't a new thing, but certainly is prevalent today in a way that is so much more in our face. 
It's our job in that kind of age to be people who tell the truth. No matter how exhausting it is, no matter how much we feel like it's doing no good, that's our job. Our role as the people of God is to speak the truth. And we will not find the kind of unity that the body is meant to have if we can't even agree on what the truth is. So we got to speak it. We got to speak the truth to one another. Embrace culture together. Embrace one another's culture, one another's histories. Living a life identified with Christ, it doesn't erase racial or national privileges. It doesn't erase our identity. It just puts them in the proper context. Like Paul did with Titus, who was a Greek, and Paul didn't want him to be circumcised. He said, hey, that is an ethnic thing. With Timothy, whose mother was Jewish, he had Timothy circumcised because that was part of his ethnic identity. He didn't have Titus circumcised because that wasn't part of his ethnic identity. Paul respected the fact that they both came from different places with different heritages. And even though they were one in Jesus Christ, they could practice certain things differently. That was okay. The gospel doesn't erase who we are. It restores it. It redeems it. We can love our cultures with richness and beauty while surrendering their brokenness to Christ. There's nothing wrong with Irish Fest downtown. There's nothing wrong with Oktoberfest. But the minute we start needing there to be some kind of meta white pride culture, some kind of nationalism based on an imaginary identity that never really existed at all, that's disgusting. It's wrong. And yeah, the standards are different. If you are lucky enough to know where your people came from, that is a beautiful thing. Black, white, Asian, anywhere in the world, if you know where your people came from, you are lucky. Not all of us, of all races, are lucky enough to know where our people came from. Lots of people are missing that. We have a huge section of our culture that had that stripped away from them forcibly. And so a unique thing about living in America and living in Indianapolis is we have this thing called African-American culture, which is an attempt to reclaim a culture because people's homelands were taken and they don't all know where they're from. And some of you who are of other races don't actually know where you're from either. And you don't know your people and you don't know your history. The beauty of Jesus Christ is that he gives you an identity, a new identity. And if you know where you're from, you can celebrate the old one, but you can celebrate it as part, as a redeemed element of who you are in Jesus Christ. Embrace culture together. Which means we have to engage with one another. We don't have to engage constantly in heavy, deep conversations about everything constantly. But we do have to engage in the work of reconciliation. It's an active thing. Reconciliation is not an attitude. <laughs> reconciliation is an action. It's where I take steps towards someone when there's been a gap between us. And that's our job. We have to engage and we have to reconcile. Because we are secure in this identity that Christ has given us, and because I can look at you in your security in the identity that God has given you. I can talk about the things that make us different. Remember, we like to talk about differences because God made those on purpose to make our unity mean something special and show something special about who he is. So we could be comfortable talking about that and we could be active in engaging with differences and across those things and in pulling together. Last point of application, last thing I want us all to take home. We can't be afraid. We can't be afraid to bring brokenness to light. And this is true whether we're talking about our city, our country, our world, our family, or our own lives. Brothers and sisters, if you can't love broken people, you can't love anybody. We're all broken people. Every city is a broken city. Every single one. 
We don't need things to be perfect. We don't need a happy, dancey story in order to love the people around us. We can pretty much assume they're terrible because <laughs> we're terrible. We as a church don't need some kind of whitewashed story in which we all sing kumbaya all the time. We can have conflict. We can acknowledge our brokenness because loving broken people is what Jesus does. When we break bread and we drink wine and we celebrate communion together and we celebrate his death and his resurrection and the blood that he shed for us, creating one blood flowing through all of our veins, we acknowledge that we are broken. Love and forgive broken people. Love and forgive this broken city because that's what Jesus does. And that's our true identity. And if we're not honest about it, we'll never, ever live into it and grow up into the full maturity and likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God Almighty, you are good to us and you are gracious. Lord, we are sinners and you are righteous. We have not loved our brothers well. We have not cared for our sisters in need. And we need Jesus to save us. Lord, help us to be truth tellers in an age of lies. Help us to reject the spirit of this age, for it's the, a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. Lord, help us to be filled with your spirit, the spirit of truth and repentance. We love you so much, Jesus. Help us to love each other and to love our city. Amen.